A very good morning. Morning. My name is Lucky, one of the pastors here. And thanks to Siu Ling and team for leading us in service for songs. And to Xu Xiang also. For the first time he's doing service leading, he had to read a very difficult passage. I do what I don't want to do and do what I don't want to do. So anyway, let's give him a round of applause to encourage him. <laughs> it's a tough passage. The title for today's sermon is called The Gravity of the Matter. So for today's sermon, we open up with a science lesson. So in the late 1660s, Newton, he saw an apple fell from a tree in his garden. And here is a picture of that tree. It's still alive. No, the apple did not fall on his head as the myth goes, but the apple fell and it was enough for Newton to ask himself, why did the apple fall vertically in a straight line and not sideways or even upwards? And the answer, of course, we know is there is a force that pulls all things towards the ground, the earth, and the force is called gravity. And ever since that day, the world is flooded with endless numbers of bad jokes about gravity. For example, the first one is this. I really don't like thinking about gravity. It always brings me down. The next one. Do you hear about the activists who fought against gravity? They started an uprising. And the last one. I'm reading a book about anti-gravity and I can't put it down. So based on your reaction, obviously the jokes fell flat. <laughs> well, back to the story, to a more grave and serious matter, Newton himself contributed to the world of physics by formulating what we call the laws of motion. And so these laws are named after him. But his ideas were not exactly new because he built upon the works of the scientists before him. So, for example, the Italian Galileo and the Frenchman Descartes. However, what is so new about Newton is in the way he applied the laws of physics to planets. You see, before him, like for Descartes, they believed that space is not empty. Actually, in space, they thought there was some ethereal matter moving around like whirlpools, pulling the planets along. But for Newton, he said, no, space was empty. But there was an invisible force that keeps the planet pulling themselves towards each other and keeping them together. And that force that's invisible is called gravity. And this gravitational force for Newton can be applied to large objects like planets or to very small microscopic objects like gas particles. So Newton's laws are so impactful and thanks to them that we can arrive today in church safely because you drove here or you took a bus here, you took a train, thanks to Newton's laws. And so today's Bible passage is also about the laws that are impactful to humanity, arguably way more impactful. You see, just as Newton's laws give us an insight into how objects move and they go in motion, the laws that we're reading today are from God, Moses' law. They give us a great insight into what moves our very souls. It gives us a better understanding of human nature. So in Romans chapter 7, Paul turns our attention to the law of God. 
and that's given to Israel through Moses. And this law is a great gift for Israel. It's a great privilege for them to receive it. Because we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, it says, What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Because for the Jews, if we were to obey these laws, Israel then become a nation that is righteous, a shining light among all the other nations. The other countries will look at Israel and say, wow, you have very great laws because this law shows how kind and generous and wise your God is. The laws he gave them taught them how to be fair in their business dealings and just in their courts. The laws that God gave them taught them how to be kind to foreigners and kind to helpless widows. And also built in the laws, there was the law of the one day off per week. At the same time, the law of one year of paid leave for every seven years. What great nation is there to have such laws? And then all the religious festivals in these laws remind them week in, week out about God's grace and faithfulness towards them. In short, the love of God is enshrined in the law of Moses. It's to teach Israel to love God more and to teach them to love their neighbours as themselves. However, something dark is happening here. We read in verse 5, it says here, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were working us, and so that we bore fruit for death. We need to take note of the word flesh here. It does not say anything bad about physical body. No, the Bible says the body is given to us by God. Instead, the word flesh is the realm of the flesh. It means the sinful nature of mankind. That something about human nature is broken. It's no longer working as it should. And because the law was a gift to Israel to point them to holiness, unfortunately, it aroused in them the sinful passions to do wrong. So consequently, the recipients of the laws, instead of being blessed, they now bore the fruits of death. In other words, instead of being transformed by the law, they are now being condemned by the law. So in short, the law was meant to be a blessing. It actually now caused God's people to die. And since the law now causes death, how can we break free of this law? and its condemnation. So back to Newton. So when he applied his three laws of motion, he developed a mathematical equation of how gravity works, which I will not display today because this is a lecture. <laughs> but from this equation, he managed to calculate the amount of force required for us to break free from gravity. In fact, this amount of force is so huge that we need to travel at a certain speed what they call the escape velocity, that is so high that we can then finally break free from gravity of the Earth. And how fast? And they found out that it takes about 11.2 kilometers per second to break free. Can you imagine with me? 11.2 kilometers just went by. That's how fast you have to go. Or, if you prefer, 40,000 kilometers per hour. Don't worry, at this speed, even the traffic police will never catch up and give you a fine ticket for it. 
But why are we talking about this? You see, because the Bible says later in this chapter that on our own, on our human strength, we can never break free from such a strong gravity of sin. It pulls us in, and within us we'll never have a strength to escape, to save ourselves, and to break free from God's law and the consequence of condemnation. So we can try as much as we can to climb higher in our holiness, but we always feel that sin, sin within us will always pull us back down, back to earth, towards death and condemnation. So today we ask ourselves, is this true? Are we really as bad as what the Bible says? And if this is really true, why did God even give us the law in the first place? Knowing that we will always fail to obey it. The next verse, chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then, Paul wrote, is the law sinful? See, just a few weeks back, one of my lecturers from Bible College, he was transiting through Singapore on his way back to Melbourne. And so he told me, hey, you know, he wants to try some Singaporean street food. So I took the chance to bring him to Edinburgh Hawker Centre and we just ordered a few dishes for two grown men. You see a photo there? So this is the next slide, also the food. Yeah, obviously, you can see from the pictures, it was a cheat day, a cheat day for my diet. On that day, I broke the law of my low cholesterol diet. <laughs> but don't worry, because before that lunch, we went to take a walk at Gardens by the Bay, and just to clock in our daily steps. And so inside the flower dome, what do we see? Besides the beautiful displays, we saw strange signs. The first sign is this, please do not touch the plants or cover them with gravel. So that's strange. So we walk and walk, and then we saw another sign, please do not touch the plants or cover them with gravel. So we thought, oh, maybe it's okay. And we walked some more, and we saw another sign, please do not touch the plants or cover them with gravel. See, by this time, we strangely have this urge to touch the plants. <laughs> and then my lecturer asked me, is it very normal for Singaporeans to put gravel on plants? <laughs> so I have no answer, right? But then why is there such a sign? And then we discovered after a few more steps, and this is what we saw. <laughs> and then a few more steps, and this is what we saw. Someone has taken the gravel and put it on top of the plant. And then a few more steps, the grand finale, this is what we saw. <laughs> the whole cactus section is covered with gravel. From verse 7 to 13, Paul explained the purpose of the law of God. Verse 7. Let's read together. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what Paul is saying here is that we need the law to tell us what we should not do. But at the same time, the law explains it so clearly what we shouldn't do that now we have the urge to do it. And verse 8, he says, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. From apart from the law, sin was dead. So the problem was not with the law. The problem lies within us. And then we go back to verse 5. That's why he wrote in verse 5 earlier, For when we 
were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. And this means that something within us has this tendency to do what is opposite of what the law says. And we do wrong, we know it's wrong, and we have a die for it. And so when the law came, it was like adding oil to the flames of a zitzah. And then what is left is the walk hay of death. <laughs> Verse 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring, sin sprang to life and I died. And I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Next slide. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandments put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. At this point, someone should really call and tell the authorities never to put those signs in gardens by the bay because it's actually inspiring people to do the very thing they don't want them to do. But back to God's laws. Why then did God give us the law in the first place? Knowing that we will always fail to obey it. So in 1981 in America, Indianapolis, they have a race, car race, and the driver, one of the drivers was called Rick Mears, and he drove his car into a pit stop to refuel his car. Can you see the video? So you can see here, people are running away frantically, it seems for no reason. And then for no reason, someone spraying fire extinguisher on the driver, Rick Mears. And we do not know why. And everybody's running around in panic. What we found later is that the car's fuel caught fire and it spread onto the pit stop crew and the driver. But what happened is this fuel contained methanol. And methanol, when you burn it in bright daylight, it produces an invisible flame. You can never see the flame. And so those who can't feel the fire, they don't understand why the driver and his crew are running and jumping around for no reason, but they are actually on fire. And in the end, Rick Mears and his four mechanics, all of them were hospitalized to burn wounds. And Rick himself, he had to undergo plastic surgery to repair his face. Even if the flames cannot be seen, but the effects are utterly horrific. So let's have a question. How can we detect methanol fire in broad daylight since we can't see it? How can we know if there's a fire or not? You can watch the next video. It shows here, this is methanol, that if you okay, click on it, then we set it on fire. You can't see the flames unless you turn off the lights. Then you can see the real fire. But another way to detect it is actually to bring another material to be burned. And then this other material will burn into usual orange flames and click on it. And you can then finally find out that actually there was flames there, but it takes another material to be brought in to be burnt. Similarly, sin in our hearts is invisible to our eyes. It operates in darkness. We cannot see our own sin. And the reason why God gave us the holy laws is to reveal the existence of sin. And so when the law comes, it arouses sinful pleasures operating within us. And then we realize the existence of sin. 
And then we act out of these flames of sin and we become condemned by the law because we also know we shouldn't have done it. So through the law, we begin to realize how utterly sinful we really are and how horrific sin is. Chapter 7, verse 13, let's read together. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And what is truly horrific about sin is that once we commit the sin, we know we deserve to die, and we say sorry, but in the end, we will still come back and do it. Again and again. Because honestly, there is a pleasure to sin. We love to sin. And we enjoy the pleasures while it lasts, ignoring the fact that it's enslaving us and it's mastered over us, it will lead us to our death. In verse 14, it says here, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So recently, an old friend of mine, he found that I actually became a pastor. And he was shocked because he never expected me to become a Christian in the first place. That explains because I usually wasn't very friendly to Christians. I was quite a nasty person in the past. So he was so excited. And then he messaged me this message. He says this, Thank God for bribing you into salvation. So I was reading, what? <laughs> but of course, we know it's a Christian context. So what he meant was, thank God for bringing you into salvation. But because of the autocorrect function of the smartphone, it changed the words as he typed. You see, the autocorrect function took control of his fingers and typed the words he never wanted to type. So for my friend, he would say, I do not understand what I type. For what I want to type, I do not type. But that, what I hate, I type. <laughs> so sin, my friends, is that power, that auto-correct power, but sends us to death. It imprisons us. It takes away our freedom to do what is good. It makes us do what we do not want to do. And Paul describes this power over us in verse 16, he said, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know what that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. The law of God, my friends, it was given to us to reveal to us that we have a sinful nature, every one of us, and that we are imprisoned by this sin, which makes us do what displeases God and what offends Him. And then at the same time, it drags us downward towards death and condemnation. So back to Newton. So Newton knew that his view of gravity, it was incomplete. Because although he could describe the forces of gravity, he could put them into beautiful equations, he actually does not really know how gravity functions. He could only describe it. And he was so bothered by his lack of understanding yeah, that how on earth did this force even exist between the planets? 
It was only about 300 years later when Albert Einstein then proposed the theory of relativity. And then we begin to understand a bit how gravity works. See, Einstein explained that gravity is simply a whopping, a bending of the fabric of space and time caused by a large mass. So you take a picture. So for example, our planet Earth has a large mass and it bends the space around it. And so when the moon passes by, it's forced, it's dragged into this funnel. It's bent, it's warped by the Earth. And so the bigger the mass, the more it bends space and time around it. And so all the other planets will revolve around the sun. Listen to what our Reformation leader, Martin Luther, said. He said this, Our human nature, by the corruption of the first sin, and we saw Adam and Eve, so deeply curved in on itself that it is so wickedly, covertly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. In other words, everything we process in life is always about ourselves. We put ourselves in the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. And this is the diagram of my universe with me in the middle, and I'm obsessed every moment with the questions like, what do others think about me? Right? Or how does this benefit me? Or if I come to church, how can I pray to make God bless me? And then when things go wrong, why do they always fail me? And if things go wrong to others, it's, hang, it's not me. But when things go wrong to me, it's, why me? So in such a universe, there's only me, 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 and me. So how does this play out in our relationships? Needless to say, life becomes hell. So for the narcissists, those who only care about themselves with a huge ego, reality distorts around them. Their egos are so big that everything and everyone revolves around them and everybody just has to walk on eggshells around them. Be careful, you might never know when you're going to offend them. Things will go wrong, because it's always our fault. And that's kind of ego, we call it strong pride. And then for those who suffer under the narcissist, their worlds are warped by the gravity of the big egos. And then these people who suffer, they no longer know how to function. And so they only keep on pleasing others. Why? Because when you please them, maybe you won't be punished. And so we become slaves to others. I remember a time when I was so hurt by the unhealthy relationship that my own space-time fabric was warped. What do I mean? Because I no longer have the safe space. And my time becomes dilated whenever I was bullied. Every suffering felt so long. And I became depressive and I suffered from anxiety attacks for years. And that was because there's so much repressed anger and unforgiveness in my heart. And the number one question I kept asking God was, why me? At a time, Pastor Chris Gentry told me, he said that, Lucky, while you may be going through a lot of pain, you must be careful of these why me questions. Because while there is strong pride in us, there is also weak pride. Weak pride is when we drown ourselves 
in self-pity. And instead of focusing our minds on Jesus, we focus on our pain and our sorrows with the why me questions. And so whether it is strong pride or weak pride, it is still pride. It is still about moi. It is still about me. And to put it in a modern perspective, allow me to quote from another modern theologian, Taylor Swift. <laughs> and she wrote in her song, Anti-Hero, It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. You see, the problem is me because of my pride. Because it's always about me. We curve so inwards that even when we try to serve God, it is still about me. So that I can serve God and make my life more meaningful, to make my life count for something, it's still about me. And so we curved, like Luther said, we are wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seek all things, even God, for our own sake. And in the pursuit of our personal happiness, we will destroy lives, our own lives, and the lives of others along the way. In conclusion, we are the source of hell on earth. And that is why God must give us His holy law to show us the gravity of our sinfulness, to show us that we are imprisoned by our own pride, that because in our own sins, we are curving inwards, unable to set ourselves free from our own gravity. We are unable to save ourselves. And not only that, Paul continues in verse 21. Let's read this together. One, two, three. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. The final picture of sin that Paul paints for us here is that as we receive God's law, as we see His beauty, and we know we are unable to obey it, so inside us there is now a war. We are being torn apart. Something like, you know, the creature Gollum in Lord of the Rings. You hear two voices. One part of us desire to obey God. The other part of us desire to obey sin, the law of sin. And so we are being torn apart and there's no more peace. Which is why Paul concluded in verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And so what is so wretched about our sin? You can summarize. Point one, sin is an invisible power that becomes aroused by the law and then destroys us with its flames condemning us to death. Sin is also a slave master that imprisons us, curving us inwards to do what is contrary to the law. And sin tears us apart, which we desire to do God's will, but we can't. And that's why we are wretched. The three laws of sin. And as we understand sin as how Paul expounds it, then we can only conclude with him that what a wretched man we are, who then can rescue us from this body that is subject to death. And thankfully, Paul did not end with these verses, and neither shall the sermon. 
It ends, it continues with verse 25. It says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To save us from condemnation, we need to turn to Jesus. Because when you turn to Jesus, he lifts our eyes from looking inwards to looking upwards. And in Romans 7, verse 1 to 6, Paul gave us an analogy of how this works. He says, for example, in the case of a married woman, she's bound to her husband as long as he's alive. Correct, Esther, correct? Yes. <laughs> but when her husband dies, <laughs> she's free to remarry, <laughs> released from the law that binds her to me. <laughs> but similarly, we too can be set free from the condemning effects of the law. How so? It's by trusting in Jesus to take our sins upon him as he died on the cross. And that by seeing ourselves dying with him, with his body on the cross, then we no longer live under the slavery of sin because our sinful part is with him now, crucified on the cross. And this trust is what we call faith. It's a faith that produces obedience. Then we are set free from the law of death. And then we are transferred from one husband to another, from the domain of sin to belonging to Christ. And verse 4, it says here, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Now, this, we are raised from the dead not to do whatever we want to do selfishly, because that is still the very definition of sin. But now, we are married to the new husband called Jesus, and we are called to live for him and to bear the fruits of obedience for God. It continues in verse 4, in order that we might bear fruit for God. This is the faith that God wants, the faith that bears the fruits of obedience. So how does this work? Right? Let's look at the slide. The next slide can actually explain. So firstly, we are ruled by law that leads to condemnation. That's before we became Christians. And that's why we have a sinful nature and it requires a law to show us the existence of a sinful nature. And then, thanks to the cross, now we are died to the law, we are ruled by Christ, and that leads to life. And through that, God gives us the Holy Spirit. So on top of our sinful nature, we have the Holy Spirit, which puts to death our sinful nature progressively, bit by bit. And then, at the second coming of Jesus, we are now conformed to Christ, no more sinful nature. So in other words, before you're a Christian, you only have the sinful nature. And then after becoming a Christian, you have a tension between the Holy Spirit and the sinful nature. And finally, when you face Jesus at his second coming, you only have the Holy Spirit with no more sinful nature, the new divine nature. And so we were deceived by sin, Romans 7, and at the cross we are decisive that no more is no more. And then as we die to the law, we become progressive in our holiness. And finally, we wait in Romans 8. Next time you listen to Romans 8, we are complete in our transformation to be with the Lord. So that's why Paul says in verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And so then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So, what does this mean? This means that we can never outgrow our need to listen to Romans chapter 7. To remind us of the existence of sin within us, to remind us of the deception of sin, and to constantly awake us to consider ourselves dead to sin so that we can be free from it. And when we neglect this teaching, there are two possible outcomes. One, we will turn and become liberal Christians. What do I mean? When we no longer see sin as a master that enslaves us, then our need for Jesus is dramatically reduced. He's no longer the one and only saviour that you need. Jesus now becomes your co-pilot, your co-saviour. And so we can turn our Christian faith into a self-help religion. Jesus is just a moral teacher, an inspiration for our self-development. The other possible mistake we could make is when we neglect the teaching of the enslaving power of sin, we become legalistic Christians. And so, because sin is no longer a boss, a, a slave master, sin is just a tiny series of wrong choices or moral failures. So as long as we don't sin so badly, as long as we're not caught, we're okay people. And so, unlike those who sin badly and got shame in public, we now become Pharisees. We tell ourselves that it's okay. We've been going to church every week. It's okay. Read the Bible and we pray. It's okay. Just don't get caught. And so, our religion becomes legalism doing things, and then we become judgmental, we judge others, and then we fall back unwittingly to the trap of self-deception, thinking that sin is not so powerful after all. Friends, liberal Christianity and legalism, they are two sides of the same coin. They all arise from the rejection of the teaching of sin as a slave master. They all affect how we see Jesus. In other words, how we see Jesus is very dependent on our understanding of what sin really is. That sin is an evil power. It is cunning. It is deceptive. And it seeks to destroy you. When we understand that, then we will always quite quite run to Jesus for his mercy and grace. Gladly joining ourselves to him and seeing him as our new master, our new husband. In summary, the gravity of the matter is the gravity of our sin. But at this point, while it is crucial for us to understand that sin is horrific, our sinful nature is a master, as revealed by the law, it is also important for us to know that we don't just stop here, because we can fall also into the trap to just keep staring at our sin and keep looking at our failures and say, Ayah, why am I so sinful? And so in the end, it's still about us. It's still about me. Instead, when we arrive at a proper understanding of sin, keep reading. That's why we have chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free 
from the law of sin and death. There's no more condemnation when you come to Jesus. And that's how you are set free from the law of sin and death. Let us learn for me to be like the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, one of my favorite stories of the Bible. In this famous story, the woman is infamous for her sins in a town. But she heard that Jesus came to the town. And so she crashed a party just to see Jesus. And finally, when she just managed to stand next to him, she could not say anything to him. All she could do in his presence of his holiness is to be overwhelmed by her own sins and shame. And so she wept and wept and wept her heart out. And tears came from her eyes and wet the feet of Jesus. Oh no, what can I do now? She didn't bring a cloth with her. Without thinking clearly, she used her hair, wiped dry the feet, and without thinking clearly, she kissed the feet. And in the end, she poured an expensive perfume, the whole bottle, on them, expressing her deep love for Jesus. At that point, she overheard an exchange between Jesus and the host of the party, something that he who is forgiven little loves little. And then she saw Jesus turn and said to her, your sins are forgiven. And again he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us come humbly before Jesus to see him through the lens of the law and let the law reveal to us the ugliness of our sinful nature. And let the law then point us to the beauty of Jesus Christ, our new master and our new husband. Because there's no other master that will have died for you and your sin. And let us today hear from Jesus again, who say to us, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us through your law how sinful we are. Help us repent from being deceived, but at the same time, help us also repent from staring at ourselves. Raise our eyes to look at you and to fix our eyes on you, who is the beginner and the perfecter of our faith. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.